This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. A great hand reached out of the dark and grasped mine for a moment, mightily and tenderly. I said to myself, the veil between, though very dark, is very thin. Hello and welcome to The Thin Place, the Film Geek Radio podcast devoted to discussions of religion, faith, and spirituality in film. This is episode number 34 for May 2013, and our topic is At Any Price, the 2012, at least for Toronto Film Festival viewers, At Any Price, directed by Raman Barani. Your hosts for this episode, as usual, are Ken Morfield, and that's me, and Todd Truffin, that's me. This is not a spoiler-free discussion, and once again, uh, our discussion is likely going to take us toward the end of the film, so if you don't want plot spoilers, or you haven't yet seen the film, this might be an excellent time to check out one of the other fine podcasts at Film Geek Radio. Todd, before we get into specific discussions, can you give us a a thumbnail summary of At Any Price? Sure. Well, if you you watch the trailer for At Any Price, you you get an image of the film that, quite frankly, didn't excite me terribly. Kind of a film about a father and son who are at each other. The father is a traditional farmer. The son wants to carve out his own identity as a race car driver, and this obviously creates conflict. As the conflict develops, some surprising things happen. We certainly get a a certain amount of preaching about the big bad agribusiness. One of the themes or motifs that keeps coming up throughout the film, and we'll certainly be talking about this, is expand or die. and so we've got a good bit about the, the small farm, the family farm, the big farm, um, some of those tensions. But we also get this um, interesting kind of examination of a family. There is a mysterious brother who was at one point, um, we see most of him in the first two minutes, the kind of introduction, who had gone on to Iowa State to play football, was everybody's big hero, and then he left. We only really hear about him through these postcards that he sends from Argentina, that he's climbing mountains and doing these things. The younger son is, you know, it's not the prodigal son, it's the younger son that stays home, and but even he wants to get away. And conflicts arise, and then there is the, the one major plot element that that we'll probably be talking about is... In an accidental incident, the young son, Dean, kills the son of a competitor of his father's. And and that sets in motion actions by the father and son that in some ways brings them together as they try to figure out how to deal with that killing. And, you know, raises all sorts of the the moral questions, I think, that we'll be, be talking about. Right. I think that it's hard not to give the spoiler because that's where a lot of the moral questions come exactly. from the film. I will do my standard 
qualification uh, or corrections, you had said that uh, the father, Henry Whipple, played by Dennis Quaid, was a traditional farmer. And I would say he's a little bit more of a modernized farmer, well, traditional. I think it's one of those things that gets it, it's. There's many things in this film that are murky. Certainly, family. The farm's been in the family for, for many, many years. years and is a tradition, but uh, he seems very intent on modernizing and updating yes. the business. And when I think of traditional farmer, I think of the methodology and not necessarily that. And I think one of the things that this film really does that makes it kind of interesting is it, it really is kind of examining those lines between major agribusiness the small, and we do see smaller, single-family farm farmers, um, and this sort of hybrid that I would I would say the Whipples are right. They are themselves a hybrid. Interesting yes. word choice. Uh, the other slight correction I would make is uh, certainly the death accident to me connotes you know pure accident. Uh, there is a subplot in which Henry Whipple is being investigated by the seed company for some shady, uh, in fact, actually illegal uh, business practices of uh, reselling, uh, cleaning and reselling some genetically modified seeds, which is illegal. And oh, which, quite which frankly, is simply illegal. It's against yes. uh, the... And it was just held up by the Supreme Court last week. Right. So, um, <laughs> But it's contractually. I mean, he, it's only illegal in the sense that he signed a contract right. saying he wouldn't do it. Uh, with the seed company and the son thinks that the rival farmer is the person or the rival salesman is the one who's uh, reported his father. And so he starts a fight with the son of the rival farmer and in the course of the fight ends up killing him. Uh, So it, we were discussing in pre-show notes, whether that would be second degree murder I tend to think they would probably plead it down. They might start there, but they would probably plead yeah. it down to manslaughter. I mean, I think they would start with second-degree murder. They, I, Yeah, they'd probably plead it down. But, I mean, accident to me would be like I dropped my iPod on the tractor and I inadvertently ran over someone because I didn't see them. Yeah. And there's that, that, that middle ground of between intent and... and well, and, and again, I think you know, one of the things that makes this film, at least in my mind, made this film rise above most of these sort of family dramas, generic type films were these murky areas like that. Right. So really what I hear you saying, and and I tend to agree is that there, there's three movies in play here. There's the modern farm versus the agro business, the sort of parable of what's happening in the farming industry and the person struggling to stay alive. The David and Goliath. There is the, you know, son, I want to get out of Dodge. You, you know, I right. don't want to inherit the family business. I, I want to get through. Son. And then there is the telltale heart slash crime and punishment storyline yeah. about like, how do we, how do we survive this particular thing? And how are we plagued by guilt? And what choices do we make? And I think most of our discussions really focus on that third storyline, which becomes more prominent towards the end of the film. One of the more overt comments about the end of the film comes when the father of the dead boy, 
who doesn't know that he's dead. Because yeah. I, mean, I guess we should say at this point, just to understand the plot, is that the the Whipples, father and son, um, hide the body. Yes. Um, and everyone else in the surrounding town, county, whatever, believes that the the dead son, is, the dead boy, is just simply missing. Well, or they hope that he's they hope missing. that he's missing, and and they do a fairly, I mean, they do a fair job with with the father as things go progressing. It's less and less likely, um, and the father seems to be accepting that it's less and less likely that his son will be found alive. Right. So uh, one of the more overt comments about this storyline comes in the form of a church sermon. That's a place where a film can be very overt about its yeah. commentary on the action in a self-reflective way, in which all of the principals are attending church, and the pastor or the reverend gives a series of platitudes in which he says God does not act immediately, but when the time is right, God will act and give every man what is due to him. And then we sort of look at the camera pans on the whipples and we're not quite sure whether to make of that an, an ominous warning that says you can cheat the law for a while, uh, but murder but will out. Murder will out, or you can't cheat God. A God yeah. eventually will will find out, and you'll have to you'll have to pay the price for it. Or whether that is a more cynical commentary by the film on religion about the vacuousness of religious language of well okay the reverend and religious and faith-minded people say that but the experience of the people in the movie and the experience of many people watching the movie is in fact that if you have money and are large enough you are protected from the consequences of your deeds you can patent or copyright even life and the rules apply differently whether you are a big business or a small farmer or a sharecropper or an individual uh, person and that in fact uh, the hollowness of that, that word not just on an emotional level but on a spiritual level it is evidenced by the fact that it is not enough to scare Henry into confession. It's not enough to scare right. Dean into confession. And there seems to be no indication at the end that they're not able to get away with it. It, it is a very interesting scene in, in partly just revealing character. I, I, I was really struck at that moment by the fact that, you know, not only are the Whipples you know, living in this community and, and the Whipples are, you know, Mr. The Whipple and son continue to sell and do their business around all of these people, knowing that they had killed this, this boy, that the entire community is out, you know, doing search parties, doing all that sort of thing. But then this, the fact that they all go to the same church, they're all sitting in the same church um, and hearing this sermon and, they just they sit through it, um, and they can they they keep their game face on. Um, it's a special kind of cult, um, I think, to be able to pull that off. And um, 
so yeah, there there is that part of it, um, and and there is that interesting just kind of narrative structure sort of thing. Because as the audience, we know the truth. You know, we know that the Whipples killed this boy, and that they're hiding it. Well, that um, Dean killed the boy. Well, that Dean killed the boy, and they're hiding it. And and his father helped him hide it, or get rid of the And we 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 know this, so that when the preacher is saying, "God will act, keep your hope up." all these things. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not quite sure how to take that. You know, is it, this is just what people do trying to get through a hard time. But then again, we know, you know, if God is going to give every man his due, what does that mean? Well, I'd normally suggest in these sorts of incidents where we're not sure how to take it, then my fallback is, well, let's articulate what are our options. Sure. I, I've certainly articulated one option, which yeah. is it is <laughs> a a warning. We can take it at face value to right. say uh, they appear to be escaping punishment, but that's not permanent. And right. the condition of Whipples at the end of the film is one of delayed retribution, but eventually we'll catch up with them. We can take it as a commentary on the emptiness of, of religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is to say, when you say we know that's true, you're saying we as Christians, but not necessarily we as all viewers, because there will be some viewers right. who don't share Todd's and Ken's assumptions about the truthfulness of that statement and we'll use the plot of the film as saying, see, that's true to life. That's evidence that your assumptions about God and the way the world works are are, are quite false. I think that we might be able to take it in a in a strange sort of ironic way as having back to the crime and punishment of, yeah. of in a weird sort of way, it's developing a moral sensibility in Henry that is at odds with the outcome that suggests there, there is in fact going to, they are in fact being punished psychologically or spiritually by the degree of guilt that mm-hmm. they are living with. And in fact, maybe punishing themselves more severely than the physical punishment that they're so afraid of. I'm thinking earlier in the film, uh, Henry, Henry's wife, who is the marvelous Kim Dickens, by the way, if anyone's And, and her Dickens performance fan. is great. Yeah, she, uh, she played Chilling. the mom in the TV show Friday Night Lights, not Coach's wife, but the mom of one of the players who uh, comes in in some of the later seasons. She'll be familiar to some people. Uh, but where she confronts him about a affair that he's having with the Heather Graham character, and he denies it all. Yeah. And then after this particular event, she asks him, did Dean kill this boy? And he says, no, I did it. And so there's this weird sort of confessional aspect of, that that he's at least taking on responsibility for some things that he didn't do as a form of penance for avoiding things that he did do. Uh, he also, there's a smaller sharecropper farmer 
who had been renting land from, that he had bought and kicked off his land, and who was eventually the one who did report Henry right. Whipple. And he tries to make it up to this guy by giving him a free lease of the land and for as long as he lives or something like that. So there's this there's this attempt to make restitution without confession. Uh, there's also a scene in which Henry meets with the father of the boy and suggests that he's going to give him a contract back so that he can not lose his status as number one in DeKalb County. And the father sort of looks at him and says, "That's why would you do that? Yeah, that business is business. Business is business. And, of course, while I was distracted in my grief and trying to find my son, you moved in like a shark. That's what I would do, you right. know, and she was that. But all of those things evidence that Henry both feels guilty, but also in, a, in an odd sort of way is the, either developing a conscience or is being pricked in his conscience in ways that he wasn't earlier in some other ways. So, it, and, you know, coming back to his kind of confession. Oh, I'm sorry, to, just to finish that, yeah. that thought and to relate that back to the sermon then. Yeah, the Correct. third way. The, the, the third way we could read, or the third way that we could read that is when the time is right. You know that yeah. that traditional Christian notion of God waits when we would be vengeful, or long past when we think vengeance is due or punishment is due, to give every man every opportunity yeah. to repent, and and uh, that there's still a possibility. Yeah. And to come back to that confessional scene, one of the things that's fascinating about that scene is, yes, he does say, I did it to his wife. But then he also says, I don't know what to do. And, and he seems to be very broken. At Twice. This point. Twice. Twice. He's, he's, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. He's on the verge of, of crying. He's just, I. he seems really at a loss um, in in that scene. And we were talking a little bit in pre-show. I mean, was that a, I don't know, as in truthfully, in a moral sense, he does not know what the right thing to do is. And certainly we've seen enough of him in the film that, that I think that's a believable idea, that he just simply, he is lost at this point. Um, he doesn't know what the right thing to do is. Or, and this is also very believable, is it, as you say, a strategic, I don't know. I don't know what to do to make things work out the way I want them to. Um, and, you know, both of them put, both of those I don't knows put him into this very stressed place. And maybe that's what's, you know, perhaps driving. But I think given his, his trying to make restitution in some of these other ways, it makes me lean a little bit more towards the moral that he doesn't quite know, or he does know but he can't bring himself to turn his, himself or his son in. Yeah. It's hard for me to go all the way to, he literally doesn't know that his moral conscience has been blooded mm -hmm. um, or that he's bought into the self-justifying rhetoric in such a way that he literally doesn't know what to do. But I do think it, it, it's meant to underscore something more than just, I'm at a strategic loss. I'm, yeah. I'm, I, I don't know. Well, and I think, I don't know what my next yeah. move is. And I think Quaid's delivery of the lines 
suggests more of yes. the moral. And and I think that also is reinforced by Barani's body of work, which I have not seen Goodbye Solo or Man Push Cart, but I mean I have seen Chop Shop and my understanding of Barani over if that's not too poshy a word is that he's very much interested in environmental factors and socially environmental, economically environmental factors and the way that that makes people feel as though they are victims of circumstances much larger than themselves, Mm -hmm. whether they're socioeconomic or biological. The interesting thing then about At Any Price is that Henry Whipple is certainly not a boy. He is not economically disadvantaged. He he proudly says he's the top salesman in seven counties, which is less than the 26 of his rival, but is (laughs) more than the acres that he's gotten. Right. Um, He is he is mocked by his own father who says when I was having the farm, it was backbreaking work and you have these GPS tractors that are air conditioned and just means pushing a button and right. riding around for a couple hours and whatnot. But that expand or die motto that he keeps going back to expresses a mindset that says in the face of these global national corporations that are forever squeezing uh, people, I don't feel as though I am able to do what I want to do. I think most of the, most people when they use the phrase, I don't know what to do, what they really mean is I don't know how to avoid the consequences of any of my choice. I don't like the consequences and right. I don't like any of my choices and I don't know how to avoid the consequences that I want to avoid. And one of the ways that we then justify making moral compromises of things that we do know are wrong is by rhetorically or psychologically inflating those consequences to the point where we can fool ourselves or others into saying we were compelled to do them. We had to do them. It was a matter of life and death, expand or die. I had no other choice. I mean, and I think there is evidence in the film that suggests that if he doesn't expand, he's not going to die. Now, maybe the small farm is going away and everyone feels that way. Uh, maybe I'm not going to be. The I'm not going to have more to lay down to my kids. I'm not going to be right. able to take my wife to Paris. But there seems to be a lot of room in between die. I'm not going to be able to eat. I'm not going to be able to survive. And I'm not going to have the life that I wanted. I'm yeah. not going to be psychologically, you know, what it is that I want. And it it is telling it when, when the husband and wife are having a, a, an argument. She does look at him once and say, why can't you be happy with what's in front of you? And, you know, in some ways for him and for his character, I think that 
Yeah, that's one of those key questions because he's living expand or die. Mm-hmm. There's no room in expand or die for be happy with what's in front of you. you know, being happy with what's in front of you is not an expansionist model. It's it's be content. It's this is good. I'm gonna maybe work hard to keep what I have, but that's very different than expand. Right. So the interesting then, this can be a tough thought, but see if you can bear with me. The interesting confluence of the agriculture and the environmental story about the small farms being squeezed out and this more personal or intimate story of the family and the father I think ends up leading to this much more dramatic consequences of life and death and moral issues. Because I think we're used to seeing in those sort of, why can't you appreciate what's right in front of you? That the consequences are on more of an emotional or a spiritual level. Mm -hmm. You know, it's about the family breaking up. It's about, it's not literally about life and life and death. It's, and it's usually about the individual in the moral sense learning to appreciate what's what's right in front mm-hmm. of him. I think by merging it with that genre of the agro business, there's an argument, and I'm, I'm not sure that I buy it, that part of the reason why we, not just Henry, but we as human beings can't appreciate what's right in front of us is because we live in a system, capitalism or institution, that environmentally makes that impossible. That, that in fact, it buys into, I think the film buys into that notion of expand or die. Maybe not as much as Henry does, but it buys into it some and, and has that notion of like, okay, well, maybe, yeah, Ken, you're right. He's not going to die tomorrow, but his way of life is dying. And in fact, if you're not moving forward and acquiring more gradually, the big fish will will gobble you up because that's the nature of capitalism right. is that, you know, big fish eat the little fish. And if you're not the biggest fish, then you're constantly in danger and eventually you will die. But now then is it possible to read the end of the film as slightly more optimistic? I mean, I don't think it is, no. but in that sense of, of perhaps you have to be broken before you can rebuild. And well, I think what Paul would be getting at is that how, how are you able to be content? It's, you know, you're being content in God. Yeah. In Christ. Christ is the source of that contentment. It's not relying on external things. Mm-hmm. So un- until you're not focused on the external things and Henry is still totally, yeah, it, it, it's the farm. It's the six. It's how big is my farm? It's oh hey, look at my son. My son is now actively part of the business, and he's doing great things. It's still external, right? And it's 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 still that the security and the things. It's like a perspective of of sort of saying, well, I wanted to have more, but if someone finds out about this murder, I'll have even less, so yeah. I can be. You know, I can be content with 
folding, you know, on a, on a hand, or let me cash in what chips that I have rather than uh, rather than risk them. But that's something very different than learning to put, learning to draw my sense of self and security from things other than material things. Right. And I think one of the more terrifying parts of the of the, the of the whole film is he just totally, you know, that part of him is dead. The race car Dean is dead and he totally throws himself into the business, into the family business. And by the end of the film, he's, you know, right there with his father doing the, the exact type of glad handing and back slapping and whatever that he totally abhorred at the beginning of the film. Right. Uh, and some of that is you can see him becoming his father. And some of that is his way of trying to, expiate his own sin and to thank right. his father his kind of purgatory of but he himself then is trapped as well right i think it's worth noting with the critique of capitalism or that survival mentality that brawny is of iranian descent mm-hmm. and so you know but several, he was born in north carolina right but several <laughs> of his films then are about the immigrant experience mm-hmm. or are about, you know, either about the immigrant experience, about leaving, making a new way in life, or about how ways of life are just gone, you know, are changing or right. developing out. And so I think this is the the most complex or Americanized version of them. And it's the most narrative. Uh, I guess that gets us into overall assessments. I think the film had some good things going for it for me. I don't think it was as successful as some of his earlier films just because I I, I think the film either needed to be slightly more focused for me or about 20 minutes longer to integrate these different storylines on a mythic level, a marginal but not enthusiastic thumbs up. Yeah, let's say for me, one of the things that I really enjoyed about this film is that it it provided a, a a take on a certain genre of film that usually is not at all complex. You, you know, these sort of family dramas, or especially the kind of thing where the young kid is growing up and there's a family business. Those tend to either go only one or of two ways that are never all that complex. I mean, either the person, you know, the father is made to understand that he's just an old fogey and needs to get with the young generation or the young generation learns that, Oh yes, there's a great tradition here and dad's right. And we go that way. Or the kid's Um, not really dead, but the (laughs) shock of coming that close to losing everything makes you appreciate what you have in front of you. And, And, and one of the things that I really appreciated about this film is that it didn't do that. And it provided a very complex, uh, morally complex world that what we saw in a three, four days, like three days yeah. ago. And I'm still thinking about it in complex ways. I think that's, that's a good thing. I, I was, you know, the, the role of the mother, uh, the Kim Dickens character. Um, and you, you talk about it needed to either be 20 minutes longer or shorter and more focused. Yeah. The, the, the role of the mother in this film is one that I would have really liked to have seen more. And it, and it to me, it felt like it, it it needed more development, and it didn't get it. Well, I always want to see more Kim Dickens. Um, 
But, I mean, having said that, I thought all of the acting was, was very good. Yes. I mean, it's always a pleasure to see Dennis Quaid. I mean, uh, heck, I even watch Vegas just so I can watch <laughs> Dennis Quaid. And Zac Efron is, is very good in this film. Fine, you know, too. So I think that uh, the acting uh, certainly helps the film. It's a very somber film. It, it was a lot darker than I, I was expecting. Um, and not just because there was a murder or a killing or an accidental death, whatever we want to call it. But, yeah, I, I, I agree. I, the first two-thirds, three-fourths of the film, I was totally with it. Um, the ending seemed a bit rushed right. to me. I'm, I'm just now noticing that IMDb is listing this as a thriller. I don't know that I'd go. <laughs> I don't think I'd go to thriller territory with this one. But <laughs> I just wanted to add to any of my Northern Illinois friends, which is where I went to graduate school, that there was a little thing in the credits that said it was filmed in DeKalb, which you all probably know there. So uh, any any. Husky alumni that are out there, any of my NIU friends that are out there, uh, go see the movie and see if you can recognize any of the cor- any of the cornfields uh, that I remember from my college days. So, Todd, anything else? No. All right. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, everyone else, for listening. If you have questions or comments about this episode, please visit our website at www.filmgeekradio.com backslash the thin place. You can also send us an email. You can follow me, Ken, on Twitter at twitter.com backslash Ken Moorfield or read my reviews at the number one morefilmblog.com. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio. Yeah.